welcome to episode three of Nevermind the Ballots. My name's Esme Ashcroft. I'm the political editor for Bristol Life slash Bristol Post. And this week we have Eleanor Cumley, the Green Group leader for Bristol City Council. We also have Desmond Brown, who is a communities campaigner. We cover diversity in politics, institutional racism, the arena, and even unicorns get a mention. So you can download Nevermind the Ballots from any of your podcasting apps. You can rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to us. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ballots Podcast. This week, we cover some really interesting subjects. So without further ado, let's crack on with the show. Ellen, I'm going to come to you first. Now, you've brought along today diversity in politics as your topic to be discussing. So just to kind of kick off, I've pulled some stats and I found that 29 of Bristol's 70 councillors are women and 208 of the UK's 650 MPs are women. So we're looking at quite a low representation rate, but should probably say that this is the best it's been for years. Yes, I mean, we're, we're improving from a low baseline. And it's not just about women. I mean, I, I thought of this topic because I am the only female party group leader in Bristol. And it's slightly irritating that it's it's down to the groups that are not represented to raise the issue of representation. But somebody's got to raise it, so so it might as well be me. And you're right, women are hugely underrepresented in politics. Around a quarter of the House of Lords come from over half the population. Around a quarter of the Cabinet are women. Under a third of MPs, around a third of local councillors, and less than one in five of council leaders, and none of the six new metro mayors. In fact, most parties didn't have a single female candidate in any of those contests. But it's also, similarly, you've got um, around 8% of the members of the House of Parliament are from black and ethnic minority groups, compared to around 14% of the population as a whole. And you've got only five MPs with disabilities, which is less than 1%, whereas around 20% of the population as a whole identifies as disabled. And there are, there are two sides to this. It's, it's whether people from those underrepresented groups feel they can come forward, and it's also whether we make it possible for, for them to have political careers and to take elected roles when they do show an interest in politics. Now, in the Green Party, we're doing pretty well on female representation. Um, just over half of Bristol's Green councillor group are women. And one of the reasons that we've been successful in doing that is, is a really simple intervention, that whenever there's a, a, an internal election or a candidate selection, if a woman doesn't come forward in the first case, we reopen nominations and give a, another week for, for a woman candidate to come forward. And that's a, a sort of clear, simple message that says, this is for women, you should be standing, don't feel shy about putting yourself forward. Now, recently in Bristol, and now this wouldn't work ever in the country because in some parts of the country, the population is, is dominantly white and there aren't enough black and ethnic minority candidates who could put themselves forward. But in Bristol, we think if we want to represent our community and, and our population, we should do the same for black and ethnic minority candidates. So we do the same now if there isn't a candidate from an underrepresented group in the first instance, then we reopen nominations for another week. So if I could take it right back to the beginning, why is equal representation important in politics? 
I think it's really important. It's, it's important for the people who see themselves represented or not. I, I was talking earlier to Tony Dyer and he was talking about when he was a child, although the MPs and the councillors looked like him, they didn't talk like him. They didn't sound like they were from Bristol. You know, th there was not an MP for Bristol who was born in Bristol, I think, until Darren Jones. And, you know, that matters for a kid growing up. It, it hampers their aspirations. But I think it's more important than that for all of us. It's important that we have diverse voices in the room when we're making decisions. Because if you don't have people in the room who have the experience of sexism, who have the experience of caring responsibilities, who have the experience of living with a disability, who have the experience of receiving racism, who have the experience of living in poverty. If you don't have those voices in the room, you get worse decisions for all of us. And so having diversity is not just about the interests of the diverse groups. It's about the interests of all of us and it's about getting the best decisions that we can. And, and what are some of the barriers that you think particular groups, and obviously it's going to be different for, for everyone, what are the barriers to entering politics if you're not a white, middle-class, educated man? I think one of the barriers is, is that first sense that it's not yours, it doesn't belong to you, and you shouldn't dare to put yourself forward. But I think it's not just that. I think there are real barriers that we have to address. Um uh, one example is we recently, in the Green Party, we've, we've been trying to get job share adopted. You know, in any other job, if you have caring responsibilities, if you have a disability or long-term illness, it's possible for you to take those jobs on a job share basis to work part-time and still contribute in that role. In politics, that's very much harder. So we did, um, under the previous administration, we had the first job share cabinet members. So the, the green cabinet member was a job share between two women who had young children, had caring responsibilities at home. Both fantastic, did fantastic jobs in the role, but wouldn't have been able to take that job at that stage if it had been full time. We have also, we've been, we took it to the High Court to try and get a job share MP allowed. So, so we had um, two people who wanted to stand as a job share, uh, one of whom had a dis disability, one of whom had caring responsibilities. And we were not allowed to do that, and we will keep trying to push for that. But you're just not going to get people represented if there's only one way of working. And the, the way that the Houses of Parliament works is absolutely archaic. It doesn't fit with family responsibilities. It doesn't fit with any kind of normal life at all. It seems to fit very well with kind of highly paid directorships, <laughs> but it doesn't fit with a normal life or with, with working in a, a, another job. You know, so say if you're a doctor and you want to keep up your skills, there's no possibility of doing the MP role part-time and sharing it with someone else. So we really cut down the diversity. Is that reflected in the council chamber as well? Because I know that there in Bristol there have been some arguments over what times meetings start, you know, whether it should be 2pm, then obviously people who are working won't be able to get that. But if you start too late at, say, 6 or 7pm, then it goes on very late and that's not conducive to having a family or putting kids to bed, that kind of thing. Yes, that was one of the things that the, the um, women councillors put forward, that the meetings should start earlier. 
um, in order to fit in better with people who had caring responsibilities. Interestingly, um, we're talking about getting the right decisions by having a mixture of people in the room, a, an all-male constitutional working group decided that that was a silly idea and it should go back to six o'clock meeting times. And it, it, we had to point out that the, the decision had been made for a reason. And so we moved it back. So now the meetings are split half and half. So in the winter, when the evenings are dark, we meet earlier. So those who have concerns about travelling at night um, can still contribute. In the summer months, we meet later um, so that those who work don't need to take time off work all through the year. It is only 10 meetings a year, so it's it's not the end of the world. Um, I think another thing that we we don't think enough about is economic disadvantage. That if you want to work in politics, like in a lot of, of the sort of influential careers, there are unpaid internships, there are jobs that don't really pay the rent. There is, you know, standing as a candidate. You don't get paid to stand as a candidate, but it's hours and hours of work. It really limits who's able to advance in political careers because they just don't have the opportunity. And that that affects the black and Asian minority ethnic communities who have a historical legacy of economic disadvantage. It also affects the white working classes who are hugely underrepresented in politics. And we really need to do something about that. You know, for example, the, the role of councillor is paid around £12,000 a year. Now, if you're the only breadwinner in your family, if you have childcare to pay for... <laughs> if you have um, maybe elderly relatives to support, it's quite difficult to do that. And if you have the kind of job that lets you work flexibly, great. But if you have the kind of job where you're doing shifts and you can't just say to your boss, I'm going to take time off for a council meeting, that's a real barrier to people being involved. And one of the things that... um, I'm, I'm really proud we've, we've just done in the Green Party is, is we've opened up a fund. Now, unlike some of the other parties, we're not rich. You know, we, we don't have a lot of, of financial backing from, from either business or unions. Uh, and we don't have a, um, a sort of property portfolio like the, the Lib Dems do. But we've asked our members to, to contribute to a fund um, it's named the Dacre and Zerubi Fund after our candidate for the Greater Manchester Mayor, who tragically died during the campaign. Um, and so in his name, we're raising a, a fund to support candidates of origin from the Global South, to encourage people to get involved, to, to reach out to communities that are underrepresented, to support those candidates with training um, and with expenses so that we open up the possibility of them getting involved in politics. Um, and so that's a really, it's a really positive thing that I'm, I'm really happy. Our, our, um, the Lord Mayor of Sheffield, Majid Majid, just, just launched it. Um, and so that's something that I'm really happy to see that we're doing now. Wonderful. And Desmond, if I could bring you into this, in terms of the 
makeup of Bristol City Council and the city's MPs. What do you think about its diversity across all all boards? Well, I mean, as already been said, you know, we've got five councillors who are from ethnic minority out of the seventy, and that's that's not including Marvin. Yeah, they're yeah, not including yeah. Marvin. As already has been said, you know, it's it's really important to have people in the room that have experiences and knowledge of of what it's like to live in Bristol as one of those people. I mean, since two thousand and one census, we've doubled our ethnic minority citizenship of Bristol. It's gone from twelve percent to twenty two percent or twenty four percent. Our school system is they've got three times more uh, young people now in our schools who are from ethnic minority. So there is a real need for there to be representation uh, moving forward in the future of, of these groups and allowing them to make decisions that, that affect the city. You know, again, as, as what's been really said is, is that it's become uh, a bit of a club in the city that, that doesn't kind of allow these groups to have accessibility to, to making decisions that will affect them. So I know our Eastern Councillor, Afsal Shah, who we'll be speaking about a bit later on as well, he has recently spoken with me about the prospect of having all BAME shortlists in areas which have a very kind of high population of BAME residents. And I know Labour have also done female-only shortlists. Now, Eleanor, if I can ask, what's your opinion on on doing those types of things to encourage minorities to come forward who are underrepresented within politics? I think the the all-female shortlists work quite well. I think um, that, that's the, the route that Labour have gone down and I think it has been effective. That's, that's one of the reasons we have more women in Parliament than we've ever had before, is because they were proactive in doing that. And I think people people worry a lot about... Or will people feel that they've deserved the role that they're getting? But as things stand, if you're not a white male from the middle or upper classes, you have to work 10 times as hard to get anywhere in, in politics. So we're not, we're not giving people an advantage. We're just levelling some of the disadvantage that already ex- exists. Absolutely. And Desmond, if I can come to you yeah, on that one as well. I mean, again, you know, we've had the Runnymede report that suggests that Bristol is one of the worst places for inequality in the country. And uh, I, I believe that that shortlist, as, as Eleanor has said, it, it kind of evens up the disparity uh, in opportunity. I'd just like to say what Eleanor said about the job share for women and, and the discipline. I think it, it is, is the right way to go. And everything she said is that I'm, I'm absolutely behind. I think it's it's very positive. I'm thinking about voting green now. <laughs> oh, a convert. That's why I'm back. <laughs> I know we've touched upon it, but to play devil's advocate, the criticism which is most often levied against all female shortlists or all BMAE shortlists or any singular kind of group of people shortlisted is that, you know, it's, it's well, it gets banded around a lot, doesn't it? This positive discrimination and should it be just the best person for the job regardless of gender race you know sexuality disability i mean how would you come back to to that how how do you get the best person for the job if the people doing the interviewing are all white middle class males of a certain age if the people doing the selection are all white middle class males of a certain age if those white middle class males of a certain age find they just click with this person behind the desk on the other side. Don't know why, I just feel like I've got something in common with this white, 
middle-class male of a certain age. How does anyone else ever break into that? As you said, Desmond, that club. How does anyone else ever break in from the outside? And yes, sometimes you might give someone a job who you might not have otherwise. It might be that because of a a history of, of disadvantage, you have to give someone a bit of extra support to get the training that they need, you know, training in in public speaking that you might not have experience of if you haven't been to a certain kind of school. You might need to give people training in the language. If if someone's first language is not English, they might need a bit of extra support to get to where they need to be in order to be a political representative. But that little investment is worth it because what you're going to get at the end is you're going to get someone who has worked harder for longer than anyone else you could get in that role and is going to make the most of the opportunity that they're given. And it's also, it, it opens the door to future generations. You know, I went into local politics because I saw women in local politics. I, I saw Daniela Radici when she ran for mayor in 2012. And I thought, oh, hang on, I could do that. I could put myself forward for that kind of thing. I could enjoy that career. I could, I could, I could dare to stand. And so, you know, Marvin and I have our differences, no doubt, but I'm so glad that he is there at the head of our city and that young black kids in Bristol today are thinking that is a possibility. That is something that I could do. And so... I think it's important that we do open that door and we do let that process start because we're going to, if you only choose from a very limited pool of talent, then you have a very limited chance of finding the best person for the job. If you open up and you have the whole population to choose from, you're going to find the best people for for all the roles that you're putting forward. And and also, you know, I mean, I'm looking forward to, to... People with disabilities being able to to have it opened up for them, you know, to have a mayor possibly who who has a disability, and so we've got to work on that because obviously there are different barriers uh, that have to be overcome. I think when we talk about the best person for the job, I think also we've got to kind of get away from this deficit model of having a BME or or a woman uh, as as a representative actually adds value. To that role, it, it's not that they're giving them an unfair advantage, or actually, okay, we've got you know they actually add something to the society and, and a different angle, and actually enrich us all rather than it being well, you know, why have they got the job? It, it, it could have been a man because maybe the man isn't the best person for that role. Uh, again, you know, Marvin uh, for for the African Caribbean community and a large larger community, I think he has you know inspired lots of young black children to to actually think they can reach further. I mean, if we look at the exclusion rates in in our schools in Bristol, something happens especially to African-Caribbean children uh, and and working-class white children from primary school to secondary school, where they, at primary school, they have these scientists and engineer dreams, and then something happens when they get into secondary school where they start getting excluded and something happens to them where they're they're limited or, or they feel limited. And it is really important that we don't just have sports stars or music stars that are, that are, are the people we look up to, that we need to have business people, we need to have politicians, 
that, that, that he can look up to. I mean, as part of my role on the mayoral commission uh, for race equality, it really is important that we actually have teeth and that we we start having people removed from chairs on on boards who aren't allowing diversity and and, and this equality and equity to be to be seen in our city, and and that's what we we want to do. And Eleanor, if I can come back to you, you mentioned that you were um, inspired. I guess would be the right word to say about getting into politics through women who you'd seen in local politics yourself were there any was there a point where you felt uncertain that you wanted to go forward or that you know it wasn't a place for you it hadn't really occurred to me until I saw a woman like me doing it it it, it wasn't something that I'd I'd really thought about I I um when I was a teenager I kind of looked at politics and I didn't see anything that was particularly inspiring. I I went along to a couple of Labour Party meetings and it was all white men being very, I mean, this is in Sheffield and they were quite kind of bolshy and and it didn't really appeal to my teenage self. And when you looked at the rest of what was going on on the left, there was a lot of kind of petty infighting and, you you know, the the scene in... um, Monty Python and the Holy Grail, mm. no, uh, Life of Brian, where it's like, we're the people's Judeans front. No, we're the people's front of Judea. It was just, that That was the, the politics of the left in the 1980s. So there was nothing really that inspired me. And I, I sort of, I at that point, I really gave up at, on party politics as, as something that was of interest to me. And I, I went off and thought, well, I'll, I'll, do, I'll do good in the world in other ways because this is not really for me. And it was only... When I, I saw Daniela running for mayor and I, I started listening to what she was actually saying and, and thinking, you know, one, I completely agree with what I'm hearing and two, I could, I could do that too. And that was, it was only after that that I joined the Green Party. It was only um, after that that I, I started getting involved in politics. It was before that. It was something that I just sort of put out of my head and thought wasn't wasn't ever going to be of interest. But if do you think that if perhaps somebody had come to you when you were younger, a teenager or, or you know, early 20s and said, there is a place for you in local or national politics, this is why, would that have changed it? Would you have gone in a little bit earlier? I, I don't know. It's quite possible. Um, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I was too busy travelling the world and having fun. But... <laughs> but um, yeah, it's possible but because it does really suit me. You know, I, I love talking about ideas. I love meeting people. I love, um, I even love arguing quite a bit. And so it it, it is such a, a great fit for me now that I've discovered it, that I think maybe if, if someone had come to me when I was a student or, or when I first started working as a teacher and said, here is a, a way that you can contribute that you you would be good at. Maybe I would have been tempted, but nobody did. Mm. And Desmond, I know you're not an elected politician at all, but you are obviously you're involved with the work of of Bristol City Council in terms of equalities in communities. I mean, the same question really. If if somebody had come to you a little bit earlier and said, actually, we really need to hear your voice, or we really want you to come forward and give your opinion on this. Do you think you would have been prompted to get into politics or the political realm a little bit earlier? 
I think growing up, I always believed politics was something that was done to you. It wasn't something that I felt that I could or, or, or would be part of. It was kind of like, it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government get in, that kind of thinking. And that's why, again, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much older now. It's really important to see people who look like you, as Eleanor said, doing roles and making decisions and making changes, you know, arguing, maybe losing sometimes, but actually being part of the system. And, and I think it's important for our democracy that we have that representation because there are people, uh, and I know the African-Caribbean vote is, 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 is one that is still to be harnessed properly by parties because in, within that community, a lot of people don't think that it's for them. So I think that if we'd had more representation and, and people like Marvin and Cleo Lake, you know, I, when I was younger, I think I would have been inspired because I, I work quite closely with Cleo and she's an amazing advocate for for her area and the city. And she really cares and, and she does make changes as Marvin has done and, and lots of other people. But yeah, I think I think if we'd actually, as a young person, we had Bernie Grant. I mean, that was that was the person that we looked up to. And but he was kind of isolated in Tottenham. And it was kind of, the, he was part of the loony left at the time and he was marginalised and seen as a kind of troublemaker. I think now, obviously, again, we've got more BME representatives. I, d I just wanted to say, actually, on the 23rd, there is a, a, a BME uh, councillor come and see session at the Malcolm X. Asil Shah is going to be running that and, and, and uh, Councillor Asher Craig's there for people who are interested in becoming councillors to go along and hear what the experience is like so I would definitely check that out. And so things like that are really, really positive about getting the next generation to come and represent the city, not just to change things for them, but to change things for the whole city for the better. And as Eleanor said, it's really, really important that, that we, we invest in that. So you mentioned, obviously, the, the meet and greet and find out a little bit more about what being a councillor entails. But what other positive and active steps do you think we need to be doing to increase diversity in politics? Well, I think, you know, I was listening to Eleanor's first opening uh, statements about, about what the Green Party has tried to do with jobs shares. I mean, we've really got to look at how we can encourage the right and, and the people who can do the right things for our city and, and, and our country to come forward. You know, women have children, you know, uh, and they have to juggle a, a career and their childcare and everything else that women have to go through. And they do that. I mean, we look at our councillors that we've got, you know, at the moment, they're, they're doing that and they're doing it very well. But we've got to make it slightly easier to allow those voices that we do need to hear uh, to come across because, and again, for disability, uh, people with disabilities, we need to hear that voice um, uh, louder. So w we have to sol have solutions for the problems that have stopped those people coming forward in, in, in the past. Eleanor, same question. What, what would you like to see done actively and positively to increase diversity? diversity um i think the things that work I, I i think we do need to have visible role models i think you know um you, you mentioned cleo like I, I she's one of my favorite people <laughs> i'm so proud to work with her we've also got majid who's who's, who's the lord mayor in sheffield and it, it does make a difference i was talking to a, a young woman of, of somali origin and she had just heard about Kultum, who is the a female Somali councillor who's just been elected for the Greens in Sheffield. And she was so excited that it felt like 
Somali women are doing politics properly. <laughs> that when you know we're not just getting shoveled in for a photo opportunity. We're not just being there to make up the numbers, but we're actually coming forward now. We're taking elected roles and we're we're getting somewhere. I think it's so important that we have that. But I think we we just really need to work at telling people. You know, what you said about had someone come to me and said, I think you'd be good, would it have made a difference? The evidence is that is the thing that makes a difference more than any other, that you actually go up to someone. So if you know someone who you think would make a great local councillor, talk to them, tell them, say, you know, have you thought about getting involved? Have you thought about looking at what's on offer from the, the local parties and seeing whose policies you agree with? And actually taking that role or even standing as an independent if you if you don't like what any of the, the local parties are doing, you can stand as an independent. It would be harder. You wouldn't have the backup of a party behind you. But if you've got a strong network in your local community, why not do it anyway? You know, I, I probably shouldn't be encouraging competition, <laughs> but, you know, I, I'd much rather see... Independent councillors who are genuinely rooted in their local community, who understand the issues and care about the place where they live, than any number of, of party sort of candidates off the list. You know, it, it, it's that's what we need in Bristol. We need people who really belong to their local community and care about it and care about our city, uh, wherever they come from. So if you know someone who would make a great local councillor, tell them that. Give them that push. Encourage them to think about standing because, I mean, maybe they're secretly thinking it would be a good idea or maybe they just haven't even considered it and, and you could be that little nudge that they need. So, so why not? Brilliant. Now, Desmond, I'm going to come over to you with the, the topic which you've brought along today and that is to do with the criminal justice system and in particular a case which happened last month to our Eastern Councillor, Afsal Shah. So he went into Trinity Road Police Station to report a crime and he was arrested on under a case of mistaken identity, held for 45 minutes before being released without charge. Now, why is that so significant? Well, Afsal is uh, a great community asset for, for, for his constituency and his ward. He, he has done so much work with the police in trying to get recruits from from uh, ethnic minorities. And, and also we should say he's actually on the um, the police and crime panel. Yeah, which which is the, 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 the board that, that, um, yeah. that monitors the crime commissioner um, and, and, and she's accountable to, to that, that panel. I mean, this follows on from, from really the tasering of, of, of Ras Judah, uh, who had set up the IAG in the same community, had been very, very supportive of community relations with the police. And... And, and, and my concern is really that, especially with Assel, he should have been recognised. Having an asset like him can diffuse situations in the community. You know, as I said, he had been, along with ride-alongs, he had been out uh, trying to help young people get recruited to, to the force. And it, it was really just the same thing that has been going on for ages. He, he wasn't even asked his name to prove who he was. He was just a suspect. He says that there was, uh, uh, when he went to the desk, the staff were very discourteous to him. And, and I think that this is a problem. We've got a problem of institutional racism, unconscious bias. And I think that when you look at the figures, I mean, the, the latest report on stop and search in, in Bristol 
comes up that that we're 11 times more likely to be stopped and searched than our white counterparts. And then you look at the criminal justice system, and th- and this is where the concern comes in: is is we're overrepresented in all parts of the criminal justice system, mental health, and when this can happen to a counsellor from the ward, it, it should set out alarm bells for all of us. You know, he was held in a police car outside the station in his own ward where, you know, it's very embarrassing for him. People walking past and seeing him handcuffed in, in the back of a car. I mean, it, it, it's not good. I have spoken to him before I brought this because obviously, you know, he's a friend of mine and I didn't want to embarrass him. And he is in conversation with the police about issuing a joint statement about what happened there is no way where for the police to hide behind this because he is a very courteous man. He's, you know, he wouldn't have been abrupt. And I think there's, there are some questions to be answered over this case. But the wider issue of institutional racism within the Asian, uh, even the Somerset Force. In, in fairness terms, let me read out the statement which was issued by um, Andy Bennett on behalf of Avon Somerset Police. So he said, officers acted in good faith in arresting Councillor Shah at Trinity Road Police Station after another man who was in the station reporting an offence visually identified him as one of the people involved. This identification was later found to be incorrect and Councillor Shah was released with, without having been taken into a custody unit. We're extremely grateful to, for Councillor Shah's contribution to the community policing, both as a councillor and as a member of the Police and Crime Panel. We have apologised to him for the distress and embarrassment this incident has clearly caused him and welcome the opportunity to clarify this publicly. Now, obviously, that's just one incident, and you mentioned institutional racism within the police as a whole. And also, I think we should probably widen this out to the council and, and potentially Avon and Fire and Rescue Service. There has been... It's been mentioned that, you know, representation is not high enough, and it is... And I mean, most of the time, I think I'm correct in saying it's an unconscious bias. It's not somebody actively going out with the intent of racially profiling somebody. But why is this unconscious bias so damaging? Well, can I just correct something about the statement that Andy Bennett, that you've read out? Councillor Shah was never identified in the police station. uh, And this is something that I think that he's working out with the police. There was no, no one identified him in the station. And I think that this is where the problem comes, because that sounds as if someone pointed him out. Uh, but I mean that that's something for for their statement to work out. But I just want to make that clear because uh, I think that that's that's a misinterpretation of the situation. But anyway, let that stand. The un- unconscious bias side of it, I, I'm starting to realise that I don't think people actually understand because a lot of people who work in the police force and, and and other institutions take it as institutional racism as it's an attack on them personally. And I think maybe we might have to go back to square one and actually define what institutional racism is. It's not a, an attack on any individual. I mean, my, my, my position with a lot of, of, of the institutions is what, are, what happens and what are the mechanisms that make really, really good people, because I, I have to say I work on the, um, the scrutiny panel for police force and use of taser, and I come across professional, dedicated, amazing police officers who are actually making change as we speak. I mean, they're not waiting within their, their, their stations and in their jobs. The problem is it's the mechanisms that make good people passive and maybe some good people turn the other way and turn their heads and not, not report, you know, racist incidents or, or, or anything. It wouldn't have to just be racism, sexism, just abuse or, or, or something that's not right. And that's the mechanisms that we're attacking. 
And again, I have to say there are great people within all these institutions who are trying to make a difference. The other point I, I, I kind of want to say is the unconscious bias, it kind of goes back to the conversation we had about representation within the council. We have to have procurement that our police and fire service are employing people from different groups that they're supposed to represent, whether it be uh, mechanics or, or gardeners or painters and decorators or admin staff. or you know, We need to see that our, our institutions are represented in those jobs too because I think that there is a problem with procurement in, 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 in Bristol and, and, and the whole of Somerset. So that's a way, and I think it, it, it's, instead of being defensive, these organisations, I mean, I had a, a, a talk with Marvin, actually, on Saturday, and we had a, a brief conversation, and he said, you know, when they had that, that label of institutional racism in, in the council, his first reaction was saying, well, that was before me, it wasn't me. But then he said, do you know what, I had to take it on the chin, because, yes, and I had to admit it, and it, it's very easy to say, well, it's not me, it's, it's something else, but to accept that, that charge, and then... Is, is the beginning of making a change. Without accepting it, you then have an issue of a, a pushback. And for a lot of people, you know, with the council, it allows them to feel vindicated for their feelings and then they can get behind any change. I think if, you, if you're at that point where you're battling just for that definition, that then you've got, you've got an issue. So um, I think, you know, we can see it in Northern Ireland and in South Africa Truth and reconciliation comes with the truth first and then we can reconcile. And just to flag, the institutional racism comments were made in a safer, um, sorry, a safer Bristol safeguarding report regarding the Bijam Ibrahimi death in terms of Avon and Somerset Police and Bristol City Council. And in terms of Avon Fire and Rescue, there was a Home Office report out last summer which pulled out statistics which said that there is not enough representation within the fire service so these aren't just kind of terms we're bandying around in in the podcast itself but Eleanor if I can come to you now and ask you what your thoughts are on you know discrimination within Bristol as a whole. Racism has not gone away you know there were huge there have been huge strides in Bristol's history great steps have been made but we're not there yet we're not where we want to be yet and it still is, as you said, it, it's, you're much more likely to be stopped and searched if you are particularly a young black male. Um, and, you know, we were talking earlier about, you know, what message does it send out to people in terms of politics? We were talking about, you know, what message do we send out to people? What message do we send out to a young black man if we say, you know, we're a little bit suspicious of you just for walking down the street. You know, that doesn't help people to feel that they belong. That doesn't help people to feel confident in the contribution that they can make to our society. So, you know, just that on its own, that, that stop and search statistic is enough to worry me. And I think that often we're, we're a little bit frightened of accusations of prejudice. That kind of, oh, no, not me response is, is the first instinctive response that we have. You know, we, we don't want to be told that we're a, a bad person. And as soon as people start talking about institutional racism, we talk about unconscious bias, people's first instinctive response is to say, no, not me, I'm not a bad person. But un unless we look at what's going on under the surface and that includes you know looking in yourself at your own unconscious biases 
and thinking about how you judge other people when you see them around you. You know, I I had the example when I was a young mum, I had a, a baby and a toddler and I went to the local park and there was a group of teenagers hanging about in the play park bit. And my first instinctive response was, oh, oh, maybe I shouldn't take the kids into play because there's a big scary gang of teenagers. I stopped myself and thought, well, you know, my nephews are teenagers and, and they're fine. Teenagers are not, you know, whatever you read in the press, teenagers are not actually scary things. I went in and, and somebody had been messing up with the swings and had tangled the chain up. And I was looking at these, I couldn't quite reach them. And this great tall teenage lad came over and said, do you want a hand with that? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, you know, that, that first instinct, that first kind of biased response was nonsense and I was right to ignore it because these are just lovely kids. But you can imagine if, if you're a harassed police officer and, you know, your numbers are being cut and you don't have time to do your job properly because the cuts that the police are facing really don't leave them time to do their job properly. Sometimes you, you stick with that first biased response and you don't have time to unpick it and sort it out and, and think again. And we are going to see that kind of thing coming up where, where services are under pressure. Those unconscious biases don't get dealt with because people are barely coping with their job. And I, I think that's, that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing with the use of, of taser as a form of restraint by the police because that's what we saw in the Rastuda case. It, you know, I probably should be careful what I say as it's in front of mm. the courts, but it's... He was not making a move towards anyone. He was not threatening anyone. He was moving away and trying to get through his own gate. Um, and we saw the same, I'm sorry, I've forgotten his name, but there was a, a young white man, um, a teenager with uh, learning dis mental health issues and learning disabilities. And in the set, he was trying to get away from the police and they used the taser as a form of restraint. And then that is not an appropriate use of taser where you've got people who are stretched and have barely got the resources to do their job, you are going to see, you know, terrible mistakes like that happening. And you mentioned unconscious bias and, and addressing it and, and trying to unpick it within yourself. But isn't the very term unconscious bias, doesn't that mean that you aren't aware of it? It's something you're doing because that's the way you're kind of programmed to think or mm. you've been socially conditioned to think. How can you unpick that? Well, it, <laughs> I guess it's it's the the you know can't attend before you speak thing you know <laughs> that that you can't stop the feeling in your gut if the feeling in your gut goes oh I feel unsafe here these people are not like me I'm worried you can't necessarily stop that feeling but what you can do is you can override it with your brain <laughs> you can say I know where that's coming from this is not the way I want to think and I'm going to Take a moment and think rationally about what's happening and then deal with it. Of course. And and obviously we should say that, you know, the media has a very large role to play in this. And here at Bristol Live, Sasha Bristol Post, we have recently run a, a front page apology for a um, front page that we ran in 1996 called Faces of Evil. So it's not something which is just, I think, necessarily... It doesn't stop with the institutes like the council and the police and the fire service. It's it's endemic. But in terms of Bristol itself, and Bristol has such 
a difficult history and battle and is so uncomfortable with the issue of race and where it came from and how it, its origins started as, a, as a, an actual habitat. How do you feel Bristol is at the moment in terms of race relations and equality? Is it a good place to be? Is it a bad place? I mean, what? where are we? Um, That's well, a big question. I'm sorry, doesn't it? No, no, right. I mean, I, I, I'm always a half glass full person, but... We had the Running Read report, which, and then we had the Sunday Times Best Place to Live report, mm. where Bristol came top for Best Place to Live. But with the Running Read, it was the seventh worst place, I think it is, the seventh worst place to live if, if you're uh, uh, black or, or, or Asian minority, uh, ethnic. Um, so I think that dichotomy of the best place, I mean, I think in the Sunday Times it said it's the best place to live for jobs and, and all these kind of things. Well, actually, in the Running Read, it was the worst place for jobs for black people. So, you know, uh, I think we've got to join up as people and see it as, as one fight. I mean, but my issue with the unconscious bias and institutional racism is I think that they, it, unconscious bias is part of the institutional racism, but institutional racism is something that has been going on for a long time. I don't think it is something, the unconscious bias means that we all have that. We all have some kind of bias. Institutional racism is something that has been going on to to affect a certain group for a long time. I and mean, if you look at the Windrush situation, that is is part of institutional racism where these people, I mean, we're almost talking about that these were immigrants. They, they were British people when they left Jamaica, you know, for the last, since 1665 had been part of England. That's long before Scotland even joined the Union. And, and, and they had engorged the, the coffers of, of, of Great Britain since that time, I mean, it, that was where the, the, the wealth came for, for for Britain was unfortunately through slavery and, and the sugar plantations and, and, and all this. So we've got to be very careful because institutional racism doesn't just affect people of colour, it affects everyone. And it's, it's, it's really a problem that we all have to solve because it, it ruins everything for all of us. Um, so I, I think that Bristol is facing up and, uh, to some of the problems. I mean, I, I met with Mike Norton and Tom Morrison from the old Vic um, to talk about this, this, this very thing. And, and, you know, people are really trying to make a difference. And, and, and the biggest thing that, that, that impresses me is they want to listen and learn. You know, they're, these are people who have high powered jobs and, you know, make decisions and people listen to them, but they're willing to, to sit down and listen to people and, and maybe have their attitudes changed and, I mean, I call it fluid thinking, really. They're, they're, they're willing to kind of have, have things change. So I think that's a really good start for Bristol. I think Bristol's really addressing its legacy. I think we've still got a long way to go. But, I, you know, for me, as long as we're starting the conversation, I'm, I'm over the moon because I think for too long we've been kind of stuck with this barrier and we've been stuck where you're not allowed to talk about it or, oh, God, here we go again. They're talking about this thing that happened so long ago. And, you know, and, and I think there is a real movement and people in Bristol are, are, are trying to move Bristol forward into the future. And that's what we all want. We don't want to be stuck in the past. But to get to the future, we have to just kind of go through some of the stuff that's mm. happened. You were talking about having those conversations and opening up that dialogue. And I think that, for me, is something which I found... I can learn so much because at some points, well, fairly frequently these days, I often feel ashamed to be a young white woman from a, you know, a stable background. I, and it's that sense of, of shame and lack of understanding, which 
something which, you know, it prevents me from sometimes opening up and talking about it. And how how do we get past that sense of it's something which is inside you that's preventing you from coming forward? Well, you know, I, I mean, I really do believe this. I think that the terrible S word of slavery and the enslavement of African people has caused a trauma to everyone, you know, across across the planet. And and I think it's kind of been isolated. Well, that's a black problem. As I said before, that's your problem. But I think until we, because there's no reason for you to feel guilty, that's the problem. I think I think we've got to look at it as the cognitive dissonance that, that I, I believe a lot of white people do have over it because, it, 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 as I said, it's a trauma. And, 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 you know, we all deal with trauma in, in a different way. And I think that it's a problem, as I said, it's a problem for all of us. And I think if we can see that and share that problem, that will pull us back together. I think that if you isolate it as, it's not my, got nothing to do with me, nothing to do with me, then a certain group is saying, well, actually, it is affecting us. And you're not listening to that group. I mean, again, you know, with the work that I do, I'm always, we're always looking at stats and we're always looking at this rather than listening to the people who are affected. And it seems that we kind of, let's look at the stats again. And actually there's people saying, well, no, this is what's happening to me. This is how I feel. This is, and it's ignored. So, and I, and I think it's ignored for some reason because there is that guilt and there is this idea that there will be some massive revenge uh, undertaken on, on the white populace of the world if, if we allow people to, and that's not the case. And I think that people in St. Paul's and, and, and other areas are invested in the future of Bristol. For all of us to, to reach that really great place where I believe that Bristol can get to, we just have to just work through. You've got to crack a few eggs to make an omelette. Mm. And, and that's what we have to do. And once we've done that, I'm, I'm telling you, I think Bristol would be the most amazing place. I mean, I was going to mention before, we've got Channel 4 mm. interested in coming here. Now, uh, it was something that Eleanor said before about diversity and having black faces who aren't just pulled in for photo shoots. Channel 4 is probably one of the most diverse channels and they look for diversity. And I think that Bristol's waking up to that because rather than just pulling in people for photo shoots, they're realising that Channel 4 wants people behind the cameras, in front of the cameras. And actually, it's, it's going to benefit Bristol if we do have a diverse city, business, politics, because that's what Channel 4 would be interested mm. in. We've got 91 languages. I mean, we, we, are, we are a hub for the whole world. I mean, you think about those 91 languages, the connections that those languages have with their home countries. That, that would be great for Channel 4, which would be amazing to, that they could reach out to their countries and, 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 and that content. So, you know, I think we have to, again, move away from this deficit model of race and move into a more positive. And actually, you know, we can all walk into the sunset holding hands. Mm. <laughs> it's problematic. We've got a, a long way to go, but we're working towards it. Exactly. Glass half full. Fabulous. Well, I'm going to change things up completely now and talk about the arena. <laughs> no, 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 no. Right, so last week we had Tony Dyer on and he gave a very full and detailed description of the history of the arena. So I'm not going to go back over that, although of course I would encourage everyone to go back and listen to episode two. But yesterday we had some value for money reports which have been in the in the kind of the works since November. Now, three reports have come back, one looking at the what would happen if we built the arena on Temple Island in the city centre? What alternative could go onto the arena island in the city centre? And the prospect of building the arena in Filton Airfield, which I have to say, we always get this message. It is within the Bristol boundary. Just, you can 
practically touch South Gloucestershire, but it is technically within Bristol. So some of the headline figures which have come out of that is that the cost of building an arena on Arena Island is much greater than we initially thought. The latest figure is 188.6 million, which includes all of the associated works, specifically 156 million for the arena itself. KPMG have also said that the site would be offer more economic benefit to Bristol if it was perhaps a conference centre or mixed-use housing. And significantly, YTL, that Filton arena, would be less publicly funded money, although perhaps a, a slightly higher risk in terms of the fact that the company could get six months, two years down the line and then decide they didn't want to do it. And also, I mean, it's, it's quite a fabulous term, economic leakage from Bristol City Centre, which just conjures up some horrible sorts of like pants and things like that. <laughs> so, Ellen, can I come to you first? What What's your response to the reports? Well, I think the, the difficulty with the reports is that we're trying to compare two completely different things, that the arena at the Temple Mead site, um, the report does say that that is affordable that mm. the value of that project would exceed the investment and it would, would offer social benefits as well and, and, and it would also cultural produce, benefits yes yeah economic benefit to the city jobs in the center um the mixed use development is a back of fag packet stage you know it's a little sketch we're kind of thinking it would be quite nice if somebody did this. We don't have final figures. You know, back in, in 2004, we had, a, I think it was an 85 million estimate for building the arena at Temple Meads. We've now gone through all the reality checks and, and got to a figure that is not really going to go up much further because, because we've already done all the, the, the um, kind of working out of how it would actually happen. Whereas this mixed-use development is at a very early stage. We don't have planning permission. If we do have a developer identified, that has not gone through any kind of public scrutiny. It's been, it's been Marvin having conversations behind closed doors somewhere or other, I don't know with whom, because he's, he's not been transparent about it. Um, we've no idea what he's been promised or not. Um, and the Filton Airfield, as you said... There's nothing to, to stop those tens of millions, what, 100 odd million being spent on infrastructure for the filtered site. And then a couple of years down the line, YTL do the same calculation as, as Bristol City Council are considering doing and saying, well, actually, we could make more money from this site through a mixed use development. So let's do that and not bother with an arena. So I think the, the question really is not do we want an arena at Temple Meads or an arena at Filton? The question is, do we want an arena? Because if we want an arena, and, you know, I don't have a dog in this fight. I'm at home in my slippers by 9.30. I, I, <laughs> it's not for me. If I go to a gig, I want to go to a little gig in a local pub. It's, it, it's not for me. But a lot of people in Bristol are going up to Cardiff and they are going up to Birmingham and they are travelling miles to see the big acts and they want them to come to Bristol. So for all those people, if we want an arena in Bristol with all the economic benefits that that brings, 
we have to do it under the council's control because as soon as we say we're going to depend on the private sector, it's out of our hands and it just may never happen. And I think, you know, Labour have form in, in putting too much faith in the private sector. We saw with the private finance initiative that they embraced wholeheartedly and that is still leaving our schools and our hospitals with a burden of debt, that they can be a little bit too optimistic about what the private sector is going to do out of the goodness of its heart. And maybe that's not something that we should rely on. Maybe we should keep it under our control. To play devil's advocate, though, the council is facing £108 million deficit by 2023. This is pretty much all public money that would need to go into an arena at Arena Island. Can the city afford it? Should it just be throwing money at this project when, and I know they come from different pots, but when you're looking at frontline services such as adult social care and how much we're rolling that back, can we afford it? To have an arena there. Well, there, could I just draw the difference between course, that 108 yeah. million and the money for the arena? Yeah. When we talk about a deficit, we're talking about running costs mm. every year. So 108 million on your running costs every year is a very different thing to a one off spend, which will then lead to greater business rate receipts. It will lead to income for the council and it will lead to the council owning an asset against which they can borrow you know so so once we own that arena which will be worth more than the money we put into it by the time it's finished once we own that that's an asset that the council owns that's that's on our balance sheet in the plus column and we can borrow against that to build council housing or to do any of the, well, probably not council housing because that's a different budget again, sorry. Uh, but to, to do all the other projects that, that we want to do, we've got money that we can use for other, the capital mm. build. But KPMG said that if it, it was turned into a mixed-use development there, that actually Bristol would gain more back from it. I mean, but the council wouldn't own that asset because we're talking about a private developer doing that if they want to. Well, I mean, it wasn't made very clear, was it, in the report as to who would be building that state-of-the-art conference centre in yeah. homes? Yeah, so, and as I say, the, that's the problem through the report that, that we're talking, we're comparing a shovel-ready project to a kind of blue-sky thinking sketch of what might happen. And the, they're just not going to happen on the same time scales. You know, if, if mm. the arena's built at Temple Meads, work could start pretty much immediately. Um, if we're going to have this mixed-use development, we have to start the whole process all over again. It, it's going to be years down the line. Mm. And Desmond, can I come to you and ask your thoughts on, on this, the studies? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, this kind of really proves that, that the idea of, of, of having this report was really needed, you know, with the spiralling costs in, in a time of austerity. You know, my concern is, is frontline services. So, you know, I understand that, that, that they've said that the benefits to Bristol of, of both sites and we've seen the jobs and, 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 and this kind of thing. I mean, my concern over jobs is that we've seen in the past that do jobs actually really go to Bristol people? You know, and I think that that's an important thing that would have to be sorted out with either of these projects. 
You know, Cardiff is on their third arena at the moment, mm. I think. So I, I think, it, I, personally, I think that Marvin's done the right thing by getting this study done because 188 million is a lot of money um, when we could be investing in youth services, you know, uh, and our young people and making sure that our old people are, are looked after. The money that would come in, I mean, I, I agree with Eleanor, it, it, it's the, the ownership of it is very important because to give it away to someone else and then build their roads for someone else to get the benefit. I mean, I think it has to be beneficial for the people of Bristol, um, even if it's long-term, 25 years or 50 years. I think it's a very tough decision, really. I, I, I don't know how I would make it. But again, I, you know, with the mixed-use site, what K, K, um, KPMG have said... Um, that there would be 875 million um, net profit for, from that, um, 226 full-time jobs. If if they did the mixed-use site at, at, at Temple Quay or Temple Island, that obviously looks attractive. But again, the other thing that I wanted to mention was, have we looked at the environment? Have we looked at this infrastructure project going to, to the Filton uh, airstrip? You know, we're going to have to build new roads and we've just had the Metro bus which has been a major concern to, to a lot of people. It's been ongoing. Yeah, ongoing, and still is ongoing, <laughs> even though it's supposed to be running now. So uh, I, I think it's difficult, and, and the amount of money uh, put in uh, and to it is, is a concern, as, as I say, especially after we lose in frontline services. I wouldn't want to be in Marvin's shoes, really, but he has to look to the future uh, of the city. He's, he's got the One City Plan, which is an ongoing thing of how we want to see our city. So I know that he is looking... To the, to the future and investment long after he's gone. So yeah, I, I, I have no thoughts either way. I just really want to make sure that it's a beneficial to, to the people of Bristol that we invest in our young people. Uh, and that's across the whole of Bristol. I mean, we were talking earlier that there are deprived parts of Bristol that this is supposed to benefit. And we need to make sure that that is done, that we have quotas of people, whatever's built there that come from Bristol who are workers. So not the 5% that I think we've seen before, that we have 50% of, of the workforce that are there that come from Bristol at the very least. But yeah, it's, 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 I don't know. <laughs> mm, no, I'm, and I think that's the issue. I don't think anyone knows. I no. mean, Eleanor, would you say that it's, I mean, from having read it, I think it puts forward a very good economic case for Filton in the, in the way that it's presented and written. And y Yes, but know. I think, you know... <laughs> Do you think the it's question that you ask determines the answers that you get? You know, Have they that, asked the right that, questions? That if, if, if the mayor had asked, how can we make sure we get an arena for Bristol that serves all the people of Bristol and keeps the benefits as far as possible for Bristol? If that was the question he'd asked, he'd have got a very different report. So you don't think that the, the question was the right one in the first I, place? I think that the... Yeah, I don't think the question was the right, or was not asked in the right way. I think it led to to a certain response, and I think that what we've ended up with is a report that, on the one hand, the the analysis of the site at Temple Meads is is very carefully Detailed. worked out, mm. but on the other hand, the costs around Filton and and the the planning around what would happen at the Temple, um, the Arena Island site, otherwise, is very sketchy so for example that the 53 million that's currently been offered by the local enterprise partnership for the arena at arena island is being transferred over 
to provide infrastructure for the Filton side. Don't know if that's possible. I suspect that the lab will be cooperative. It's been it's been earmarked to be spent on the Parkway link. Now we've had Darren Jones, who's the MP for for Bristol Northwest, saying that that fifty three million is needed for wider infrastructure around the north west of the city in order to make this arena site work. But you can only spend that fifty three million once. You can't you can't allocate it to both sets of spending. But we're just kind of sketching over that at the moment. Um, I'm also concerned when we look at the alternative uses of the um, Arena Island site, having a conference centre. Well, Bristol already has a conference centre in South Bristol at Ashton Gate. Has that been discussed? Have they talked about how they're going to be setting up in competition to that? I don't know. I don't, I, I, it, it's all kind of sketched over. We're, we're talking about having business incubation. We've already got the set square business incubation, which, which is, is expanding and which is extremely highly regarded and successful. It, it's, it's just been voted, I think, one of the world's best. Um, ha- have we talked to them about whether we're going to set up in competition with them or are we going to offer them an expansion on that site and abandon the, the Georgian Hotel site? It, it's all just kind of, it's, it's a really rough sketch. And, you know, I, I could say... I'm going to put a unicorn farm on, on Arena Island and it's going to create loads of jobs. I mean, I would go to that. I would yeah. love to visit that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's going to be a huge well, tourist attraction. Even. But if I haven't got planning permission for it and I haven't got a developer lined up and I haven't got any unicorns, then it's not a goer. And I think, you know, I'm not saying that what's being proposed is as sketchy as that. But it is, it is very vague and, and we can't really compare one with the other. So do you think in terms of the content of the report and the way it's presented, do you think that that indicates that Filton is a foregone conclusion? I have thought for quite a while before I saw this report that Filton was the option that Marvin wanted. After he went to meet with YTL and um, after he went to China and presented that brochure of investment opportunities where the arena at Temple Island mm-hmm. was conspicuous by its absence, it was clear which way the way he was was pushing as an opposition an opposition member in the council. I've been working hard to to push the other way because because I think the site at Temple Meads is ready to go. I think that from a transport point of view, it makes much more sense to have an arena that is easily accessible by public transport, that is within easy walking and cycling distance of the largest number of people possible. I, I think that if... If the public sector doesn't step up to build an arena, then we have no guarantee that it will happen. And so if we want an arena and we think those economic benefits for the city, those employment benefits for the city are worth it, those cultural benefits for the city are worth it, then we have to keep control of that process. 
because it is not going to happen otherwise. Now, we're set to find out a final decision in Cabinet in July, which I think is the third, is Tuesday. If Marvin does say, we're going with YTL, is there anything on that site which could um, reconcile your feelings to the arena moving there? Is there anything they can do which would make you happier about that? I, I think I will be quite unhappy about the loss of manufacturing space in Bristol. I think that to take this space which was built for manufacturing and say, well, we're not going to try and bring high-tech businesses into Bristol. We're not going to try and get low-carbon manufacturing jobs in Bristol. We're not going to use that industrial space and use it to manufacture the heat pumps and the wind turbines and the solar panels that we need if we're serious about having a zero carbon future for Bristol. If we sort of give up on that and say, we're just going to provide services in Bristol, we're not going to do any manufacturing anymore. We're not going to have those high-tech jobs. You know, the, the, the jobs at Royals, Rolls-Royce, at Airbus, they're at risk because of Brexit. You know, there's a high probability, certainly, that Airbus will withdraw from being in the UK once we leave the EU, it's just, it's, it feels like an admission of defeat. It feels like, you know, a last nail in the coffin of, of manufacturing in Bristol. And I think that will be one of the saddest things for me about the, the Filton Airfield site. And Desmond, if I can come to you and just ask, do you think Marvin has handled this correctly? I, I do. I think in his defence, uh, slightly, I think that just to have gone ahead with this project, with the spiralling costs, I mean, you know, okay, we've said that this might be, this is probably the end of the cost because it has been through lots of consultation and the planning has been done to, to make it happen. But, you know, we are living through a time of austerity. There has been, you know, Marvin's had to make some hard cuts, you know, a lot, lot of people disagree with and, and lots of people have been against the frontline cuts. So, you know, I, I think that he's right when he says that, you know, we need to have, all the evidence in front of us to make the decision. I do agree with Eleanor that, that obviously that the Filton site is is kind of a fresh idea, you know, because we've already spent nine million on clearing the site. Mm. Attempt, you know, would we going through that and then realise that the that they weren't going to build it or they wanted to change something and and then the hundred million I think that they're talking about for the transport costs for, for, for that to, to be moved over to there, you know, I, I, as I said, it's a hard decision, but I think Marvin is doing the right thing by maybe slowing the horses down a little bit. And, and, and checking the lay of the land and trying to get as much evidence. Whether the, the right question was asked, I mean, I think K, uh, KPMG are, are the most uh, renowned people you go to to ask that question initially about the finances. Again, I have, a, have an issue over the environment and, and, and what's best for that because, you know, we, we, we have, to, have to factor that into a lot of our decisions now. Is it a vanity project having having a stadium? And I know that there's you know there's lots of jobs and and economic benefits of it, but the amount of money being used, I think there is time to pause and just actually think. Well, actually, you know, is this the best way when we are going through a Brexit? When we've got, as I said, frontline services being cut, people really suffering. Can we afford to kind of think fifty years into the future? Uh, and I, I think we have to. But I, I think it's worth a pause uh, and and to to come up with. The plans. I didn't realise we've only got to July for that decision to be made. 
I mean, I think there, there might be needed a, a bit longer, really, to, to, to sit down and, and rationale what, what the best thing is for Bristol. But I agree that it was time to, to, to have a look and get some evidence in and possibly a bit more. And Eleanor, if I can ask you the same question, do you think the way that Marvin has handled this has been correct? I think I would have liked to see a lot more transparent. I mean, generally, with, with the way that the, the Labour group is governing, I would like to see a lot more transparency. You know, the, the meetings that have happened have not been public meetings. We don't know what developers that that Marvin and his office are talking to. We don't know what's on the table. We don't know what's being discussed. I would like to see a lot more openness. I mean, the, the, the way the report came out at 10 o'clock at night, you know, so that everyone was kind of scrabbling to... Oh, my to, goodness. Um, you, you've been up half me, the night, yeah, I, I bet. Mean, <laughs> I am surviving on little sleep right now. <laughs> If we're being honest and open and, and talking to people, you know, if, if it's not affordable to build an arena in Bristol right now, why not just be open and honest and say that and say, you know, yes, in the Merrill Manifesto, when I stood, I thought I was going to deliver on the arena for you. I've looked at the books and now it's not possible. And yeah, take the political flack for that. But be honest, be upstanding. You know, I'd have a lot more respect for that approach. I think pretending there's an alternative project ready to go when it's really very far from ready to go just feels like avoiding the the question and uh, it, it doesn't fill me with, with inspiration and respect, I have to say. Well, on that note, I think we will close the podcast for today. But thank you to both my guests for joining me. Thank you. So I hope you all really enjoyed listening to that conversation as much as we enjoyed having it. Remember, you can download Nevermind the Ballots from any of your podcasting apps and you can rate, review and most importantly, subscribe. You can also follow us on Twitter at Ballots Podcast. And we'll see you next week.